call me. Go ahead and find in your, in your Bible Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30. I'd like to begin by reading verses 1 through 9. Proverbs 30, beginning in verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle. Here are the words of Agur. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not from me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In, uh, in the Disney movie Aladdin, and uh, on the older stories on which that story is based, um, the story goes that someone has the good fortune to run across a magic lamp. And so they rub it, and a magic genie comes out who says, You get three wishes. And the way these stories always unfold is as a cautionary tale about how when we get what we want, it makes our lives worse, not better. That's the moral of all those magic genie stories, about how getting what we want often makes our lives worse, not better. So they go like this. The first wish is always going to be, going to be spent on something very selfish. They're going to ask for money. They're going to ask for power. They're going to ask for fame, something And after a brief honeymoon period of enjoyment, their wish starts getting them in trouble. And it starts alienating them from people that they love. And it starts making a mess of their lives, totally unexpected. And so they need to spend the second wish undoing all the damage of the selfish first wish. And then the third wish always ends up being something selfless. Something for the good of others, which is ultimately shown to have been the way to happiness all along. Now, you and I will never find a genie or a magic lamp, pretty sure. But it also occurs to me that you and I are children of God. And we can speak to the creator of the universe whenever we want, and he will always be there to listen. And we, we can make requests of him, not just three times, but any time we have something weighing on our hearts. And our God is a giver of answers, a provider of gifts, and he invites us to ask of him. Jesus told us this in the Sermon on the Mount, Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, and will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We are invited to give and reminded of the character of the giver, God, who wants to give us good things. 
Well, I want to introduce you this, this morning to a man who took God up on his offer to ask. He says here in verse 7, Two things I ask of you, deny them not before me. The man's name is Agur. Um, he is thought to be a wise sage in the time of Solomon. Uh, a man whose, whose wisdom was so deep that Solomon, who was writing this book of wisdom, thought it appropriate to include it in his book of wisdom. And what Aker says in this chapter is, what I really need from God is this. Except the interesting part about his request is actually he doesn't ask for anything. In fact, he asks for nothing. He does not ask for wealth. He does not ask for power. He does not ask for fame, not even for wisdom. He asks for exactly nothing. He says, God, please give me nothing. I don't want to look at his requests. And I want to think about how to pray for nothing and the wisdom of doing so. So to begin with, in the opening, I think essentially what Agur says to God is, God, remind me of my nothingness. Remind me that I am nothing. So Agur's section here opens with a statement of humility. He says, I am a man who knows nothing. I am a man who understands nothing. I am a man who can do nothing. Look with me again in verse 1. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. And so Agur opens by calling himself stupid. It's a word that means literally cattle-like. Having the unthinking instincts of a herd animal. He basically says, God, I'm dumber than a cow. I'm not wise. I don't have the understanding of a smart man, much less the understanding of God. And in verse 4, he asks a barrage of questions to drive home his own nothingness. And the answer to each one of these questions in verse 4 is, certainly not me. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Not me. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Not me. Who has established the ends of the earth? Not me. And Edgar is also urging the reader to see himself as much of a zero as he does because we haven't done those things any more than Edgar has. The questions of verse 4 really sound something like straight out of the book of Job, the end of Job, where God interrogates Job and his friends about how little they understand about the workings of the world. Edgar says, I don't know anything. And he says, neither do you, reader. But he doesn't just say all of this so that we'll wallow in our own stupidity. It drives, all this talk of, of how little he knows drives him to seek the one who is the answer to all the questions of verse 4. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has done this? Verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. See, God has all the knowledge, Agur doesn't. Every word of God proves true. His word can always be relied on, unlike mine. And to the one who relies on that word, that word will be to him a shield. In other words, there is protection and safety in God and in his word. And what you have in verse 6 is a warning that if verse 5 is true, if all these things about God's word is, are true, Verse 6 says, then God's word is not something to be trifled with. This is not the kind of thing where we should feel free to edit God. 
pick and choose what we like from God's Word. Or you pr- use proof text from God's Word to prop up what, what, what actually we believe. It's not that sort of thing. If that's what we do with God's Word, it's no longer God's Word at all. It's just our Word with God's Word used a little bit to prop up our Word. If that's what we do with God's Word, pick and choose what we like in it, sit in judgment of it, if that's what we do, it's no longer... We, don't, we no longer have the humility of Agur in verses 1 through 4. We're acting like we know best. We're acting like we can sit in judgment of God's word, that we know best and not God. What he's saying is, if God's word really is what it says, what it, says it is in verse 5, and if I really am as dumb as I say I am in verses 1 through 4, if all that's true, God can never just be our consultant. We can never just say, well, I'll take what you say into account, God, and then I'll do what I want. We can never say that. He must always be our Lord. We must listen to him first. So so put verses 1 through 4 and then 5 and 6 together and what do you get? Agur knows that he is dumb. He is without wisdom by himself. He is powerless. He's nothing. He's a nobody. And that knowledge of his nothingness is the thing that drives him toward God. The God who knows all and it causes him to take God's word more seriously than he takes his own word. See, the absolute first step toward wisdom is to stop thinking that I have it. The the first step is to stop thinking I know it all already, to admit I don't know anything, and by that realization of our nothingness, be driven to the word of God. This is exactly what is meant in the opening of Proverbs when we are told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So here's the question. As as we think about how we can incorporate Agur's prayer into our prayers. Here's here's, here's the question. When was the last time you prayed this? God, I know nothing. God, all my plans and good ideas fizzle out. God, I don't know how to handle the hard things in my life. And you'll have to insert your own hard things here. God, I don't know how to be a good husband. I've tried out some bad ways of doing it, but I don't know how how to be a good one. God, I don't know how to raise these kids. God, I don't know how to be a good preacher. I don't know what's going to happen to this church. I don't know how to fix this country or this world. I don't know the right thing to do about everything. God, I know nothing, and I am nothing. But this I do know. If I know one or two things, it is this. I know your word is true. I know that you were a shield to every nobody who enters your fortress. And I know that your word is not to be trifled with. That's what Agur prayed. See, the irony of Agur's opening and the irony of wisdom is the second you admit you don't know anything, you are well on your way to knowing something. The second you admit, I don't know anything, you are well on your way to wisdom. You've at least shown yourself to have a good knowledge of yourself. You've shown that you have self-awareness. You know what you're actually like. You know your own limitations. And when you know that, you're in prime position to receive the knowledge from God who does know. So how do you pray for nothing? The first answer is, you start by confessing your own nothingness. You admit to God that you are a know-nothing. You stop acting like you've got it all figured out, and if the world would just listen to me, all the world's problems would be solved. We know what foolishness that is. We stop acting like all we need from God is a little pick-me-up. We've got the right answers, we've got the right ideas. God, just give me a little strength to do what I want. No, we remember all the messes we made when we did our own thing and in genuine humility seek the wisdom of God. That's the first move Agur makes here. 
Which brings us to a second nothing prayer, which is remove from me all falsehood and lying. We see this in verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Here's the first one. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Do you see the nothing here? You see, he's really praying for nothing. He's not praying for something. He's praying for nothing. He is not asking God for things. He's asking God not to have things. So what Acre has so far in 1 through 4 is humility. And he has the fear of God in verses 5 and 6. And what he's asking now in verses 7 and 8 is that nothing and no one will get in between he and his God who he fears. What he's saying is, God, please keep sinful influences out of my life. Keep people away from me who would damage my faith. Keep away anyone who would help me be proud instead of humble. Keep me away from anyone who might defile your word instead of honoring it. In a few verses, Edgar will look around at all the spiritual danger in the world. He'll say this in verse 11. There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. They are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from mankind. He says, God, I don't want any part of this. I don't want it in my heart. I don't want it in my mind. I don't want it in my life. I want none of it. Take it far away. Remove from me all falsehood and lying. And so I want to put in a good word for praying for nothing. Now, Agur could have asked for wisdom here. He could have prayed for wisdom He could have prayed for faith. He could have prayed for strength. All good requests, requests we see happening all over the Bible. But he uses a request to ask not to have things. He's already humbly walking with God. And now he just wants to make sure nothing comes into his life that will distract him from doing that. Again, I'm certain neither Agar nor God are against asking God for things. But my point is more is not always our most urgent need. Sometimes what we need is less, not more. And so as much as I need more faith, maybe I also need less of the world. Maybe that's my need as urgently as more faith is less, less of the world. Maybe as much as I need more Bible reading, maybe I also need less TV. Maybe I need less cable news. Maybe I need less social media. As much as I might need more wisdom... You know what I also need is, 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 some, is, is less foolishness, less foolish entertainment, fewer foolish people in my life. Think of it this way. If we have just a finite amount of time and energy, then any request for more of something, doesn't it imply a lessening of something else in equal proportion? That's got to come from somewhere. If we want wisdom in, we also need foolishness out. I think even Jesus encouraged us to pray for nothing in this way. You know, of course, Jesus is all for praying things, praying, praying for things. He says, give us this day our daily bread is something we should ask for. But in the next breath, he also says this. He says, pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a prayer for nothing. Lead us not into this. God, don't give us this. God, take away temptation. Take away opportunities to sin. Don't just give me more strength to overcome temptation. Give me less temptation whenever possible. Not a request to be given something, but a request for divine removal service. Give me nothing, no thing, 
Take away the things that stop me from serving you. And I think there is great wisdom in this nothing prayer, that no matter how much faith we have, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we know, if we have a bunch of stuff in our lives that don't belong there, if we are surrounded by people who are not serving God, if we're filling our heart with things that don't belong there, you can ask God for more faith all day long and you're still probably going to fail. To get more faith in there, there needs to be less obstacles in there, less stumbling blocks, less junk, fewer idols. Now, one, one final reminder about this nothing prayer, which is true of all prayer. Don't pray for something you're not willing to cooperate with God to get. Don't pray for something and then make yourself an enemy of that answered prayer by doing the opposite. So imagine Agur praying, praying verse 8, remove from me all falsehood and lying and saying amen. And then he walks out to spend the evening with ungodly people doing ungodly things with ungodly attitudes, same as always. What would you think of Acre's prayer then? We need to pray, God, take away the sin. Take away the distractions, the stumbling blocks, the bad influences, the idols. And then we need to act like we actually want the thing that we have just got done praying for. Remove from me all falsehood. Which brings, to me, brings me to number three, which is, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty nor wealth. Acre's next request is for two more things he does not want. The first thing he does not want here is, is quite easy to get on board with. The second one is a harder sale, sale I think. Verse 8, remove from me all falsehood and lying. And then he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So his first request is, God, don't give me poverty. I don't want poverty, which makes perfect sense to us. We don't want that either. He goes on to say, rather feed me with the food that is needful for me. Reminds me of Jesus' request, give us this day our daily bread, which gives away what his definition of poverty is. It seems his definition of poverty would be living under the specter of not having enough, of, of, of being worried of not having enough daily bread for the day. That's his definition of poverty. He's praying that having enough for the day would never be a problem. And then he gives the reason why he doesn't want all of this. He says at the end of verse 9, Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, he says, God, I know that if I am poor, I may be tempted with more sin. In my desperation, I might be tempted to steal and harm others. Or in my bitterness over my lot in life, I might, like the wife of Job, be tempted to profane and curse your name. I might be tempted to say, God, how could you do this to me? And I could resent God. He says, I know there are temptations that go with poverty, and I don't want those. So God, please don't give me poverty. Now, the second one's a harder sell. He also says, God, don't give me riches. Don't give me riches. Now, why doesn't he want riches? He says, verse 9, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Now, when we talk about Scripture's many warnings about, about wealth, we tend to be very eager to qualify those warnings. And we say, well, it's not wealth in itself, it's our attitude toward it. We say it doesn't have to be a bad thing. We say it's not the money, it's our attitude toward the money. To which I say, true enough, as far as, far as it goes. But actually, Edgar doesn't go there. He doesn't say bring on the wealth with some additional faith to handle the temptations of wealth. That's not what he says. 
Instead, he says, I, I don't need the trouble. I don't need the temptation. I don't want to be one of those rich people who get so full of themselves that they forget how to spell God. See, wisdom never sees temptation of any kind as something to be flirted with. It's always something to be fled from. Wisdom always does that with temptation. And so Agur says, if wealth is a temptation, and it is, maybe we should ask for that to be removed too. You see the wisdom in that request? It's a hard wisdom. And, and Agur's wisdom about wealth is totally well-founded. Uh, it's likely he's thinking of these very texts when he says this. This is Deuteronomy 31 and verse 20, where God is speaking to Israel about the prospect of going into the promised land, this rich land flowing with milk and honey. They're going to move into houses that have already been built. They're going to be instantly wealthy. And he says this, he gives this warning. He says, when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, and they have eaten and are full, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. They'll say, thanks a lot, God, for the blessings, and then go about their lives enjoying those blessings, forgetting about God. It's a New Testament warning too. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Jesus told stories about this too. Remember the story of the rich man building bigger and bigger and bigger barns? A life spent coveting and accumulating. Uh, the guy in that story is, is a, is a first-person pronoun producer. I have my barns, my wealth, me, me, me. And then he dies in the story and he finds out that a life spent in pursuit of more money and a life not spent in pursuit of God is utterly wasted. As Agur says, don't give me riches lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I want us to see the maturity of this request, the wisdom. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I want nothing, is what he prays. I don't want any avoidable threat to hurt my relationship with you. All I ask is to get nothing that could jeopardize that. So I want to recommend that sometimes we ought to pray for nothing. The prayer could go something like this. God put nothing in my life that could tear me away from you or your people. Put nothing in my pocket that could lure my mind or my soul away from you. Give me nothing in my life that will help me become proud conceited, self-righteous, or full of myself. Give me nothing that will lead me down that road. And we have to come to, the, come to the, I think, realization that maybe if your faith is weak, maybe if your spiritual life is not going great, maybe the problem is that not that you don't have enough, maybe the problem is you have too much. Too much going on, too many hours at work, too many hours in front of the television, too many friends who don't love God, too much of the wrong stuff. And maybe what we really need to pray is not, give, not God give me more of anything, but God help me clear the weeds and make more room for you. Would to God that we would each reach a place in our lives where we could be content to ask for nothing. God, I want nothing. Nothing that will alter or threaten my relationship with you. All I want, God, is to keep worshiping and serving you. So just keep away anything that might stop that. Keep reminding me that I am nothing. And keep reminding me that I need nothing except for you. And so as we close, let me ask, is that what you need this morning?
nothing from God, to have removed from your life falsehood and lying, to have removed the money or lack of it. It's getting in between you and your God. Maybe what's your prob- what your problem is is the fact that you think that you are something and that you don't need God. I would, I would ask that you come and you ask God for nothing, nothing but him and nothing but his blessings. If that's what you need, come forward now as we stand and sing. Jesus is tenderly calling me home, calling today, calling today. Why from the sunshine of love wilt thou roll farther and farther away? Calling today, calling today. Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling today. Come to him now, waiting today, waiting today. Come with thy sins at his feet, lonely bow. Come and no longer delay. Calling today, calling today. Jesus is calling. Tenderly calling today.